Chapter Twenty Two of the Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Two. And soon they spied the merry men green and eke the coach and four, duke upon duke. Kriegengelt set forth on his mission so soon as his equipage was complete, prosecuted his journey with all diligence, and accomplished his commission with all the dexterity for which Bucklaw had given him credit. As he arrived with credentials from Mr. Haston of Bucklaw, he was extremely welcome to both ladies, and those who are prejudiced in favour of a new acquaintance can, for a time at least, discover excellencies in his very faults, and perfections in his deficiencies. Although both ladies were accustomed to good society, yet, being predetermined to find out an agreeable and well-behaved gentleman in Mr. Haston's friend, they succeeded wonderfully in imposing on themselves. It is true that Craigengelt was now handsomely dressed, and that was a point of no small consequence. But independent of outward show, his blackguard impudence of address was construed into honourable bluntness, becoming his supposed military profession. His hectoring passed for courage, and his sauciness for wit. Lest, however, any one should think this a violation of probability, we must add, in fairness to the two ladies, that their discernment was greatly blinded, and their favour propitiated by the opportune arrival of Captain Craigengelt in the moment when they were longing for a third hand to make a party at Tidrill, in which, as in all games, whether of chance or skill, that worthy person was a great proficient. When he found himself established in favour, his next point was how best to use it for the furtherance of his patron's views. He found Lady Ashton prepossessed strongly in favour of the motion which Lady Blenkinsop, partly from regard to her kinswoman, partly from the spirit of matchmaking, had not hesitated to propose to her, so that his task was an easy one. Bucklaw, reformed from his prodigality, was just the sort of husband which she desired to have for her shepherdess of Lammermoor. And while the marriage gave her an easy fortune, and a respectable country gentleman for her husband, Lady Ashton was of opinion that her destinies would be fully and most favourably accomplished. It so chanced also that Bucklaw, among his new acquisitions, had gained the management of a little political interest in a neighbouring county, where the Douglas family originally held large possessions. It was one of the bosom hopes of Lady Ashton that her eldest son, Sholto, should represent this county in the British Parliament, and she saw this alliance with Bucklaw as a circumstance which might be highly favourable to her wishes. Craigengelt, who, in his way, by no means wanted sagacity, no sooner discovered in what quarter the wind of Lady Ashton's wishes sat than he trimmed his course accordingly. There was little to prevent Bucklaw himself from sitting for the county. He must carry the heat, must walk the course. Two cousins Germain, six more distant kinsmen, his factor and his chamberlain, were all hollow votes, and the Gurnington interest had always carried betwixt love and fear, about as many more. But Bucklaw cared no more about riding the first horse, and that sort of thing, than he, Craigengelt, did 
about a game at Berkey. It was a pity his interest was not in good guidance. All this Lady Ashton drank in, with willing and attentive ears, resolving internally to be herself the person who should take the management of the political influence of her destined son-in-law, for the benefit of her eldest-born, Sholto, and all other parties concerned. When he found her ladyship thus favourably disposed, the captain proceeded, to use his employer's phrase, to set spurs to her resolution, by hinting at the situation of matters at Ravenswood Castle, the long residence which the heir of that family had made with the Lord Keeper, and the reports which, though he would be damned ere he gave credit to any of them, had been idly circulated in the neighbourhood. It was not the captain's cue to appear himself to be uneasy on the subject of these rumours, but he easily saw from Lady Ashton's flushed cheek, hesitating voice, and flashing eye, that she had caught the alarm which he intended to communicate. She had not heard from her husband so often or so regularly as she thought him bound in duty to have written, and of this very interesting intelligence concerning his visit to the Tower of Wolf's Crag, and the guest whom, with such cordiality, he had received at Ravenswood Castle, he had suffered his lady to remain altogether ignorant, until she now learned it by the chance information of a stranger. Such concealment approached in her apprehension to a misprision, at last, of treason, if not to actual rebellion against her matrimonial authority and in her inward soul she did vow to take vengeance on the Lord Keeper, as on a subject detected in meditating revolt. Her indignation burned the more fiercely as she found herself obliged to suppress it in presence of Lady Blenkinsop, the kinswoman, and of Craigengelt, the confidential friend of Buchlaw, of whose alliance she now became trebly desirous, since it occurred to her alarmed imagination that her husband might, in his policy or timidity, prefer that of Ravenswood. The captain was engineer enough to discover that the train was fired, and therefore heard in the course of the same day, without the least surprise, that Lady Ashton had resolved to abridge her visit to Lady Blenkinsop, and set forth with the peep of morning on her return to Scotland, using all the dispatch which the state of the roads and the mode of travelling would possibly permit. Unhappy Lord Keeper! Little was he aware what a storm was travelling towards him, in all the speed with which an old-fashioned coach and six could possibly achieve its journey. He, like Don Gaiferos, forgot his lady fair and true, and was only anxious about the expected visit of the Marquis of A. Soothfast tidings had assured him that this nobleman was at length, and without fail, to honour his castle at one in the afternoon, being a late dinner-hour and much was the bustle in consequence of the annunciation. The Lord Keeper traversed the chambers, held consultation with the butler in the cellars, and even ventured, at the risk of a demêlée, with a cook of a spirit lofty enough to scorn the admonitions of Lady Ashton herself, to peep into the kitchen. Satisfied at length that everything was in as active a train of preparation as was possible, he summoned Ravenswood and his daughter to walk upon the terrace, for the purpose of watching, from that commanding position, the earliest symptoms of his lordship's approach. For this purpose, with slow and idle step, he paraded the terrace, which, flanked with a heavy stone battlement, stretched in front of the castle upon a level with the first story, while visitors found access to the court by a projecting gateway, the bartizan, 
or flat-leaded roof of which was accessible from the terrace by an easy flight of low and broad steps. The whole bore a resemblance partly to a castle, partly to a nobleman's seat, and, though calculated in some respects for defence, evinced that it had been constructed under a sense of the power and security of the ancient lords of Ravenswood. This pleasant walk commanded a beautiful and extensive view, but what was most to our present purpose, there were seen from the terrace two roads, one leading from the east and one from the westward, which, crossing a ridge opposed to the eminence on which the castle stood, at different angles, gradually approached each other, until they joined not far from the gate of the avenue. It was to the westward approach that the Lord Keeper, from a sort of fidgeting anxiety, his daughter from complaisance to him, and Ravenswood, though feeling some symptoms of internal impatience, out of complaisance to his daughter, directed their eyes to see the precursors of the Marquis's approach. These were not long of presenting themselves. Two running footmen, dressed in white, with black jockey-caps and long staffs in their hands, headed the train, and such was their agility that they found no difficulty in keeping the necessary advance, which the etiquette of their station required, before the carriage and horsemen. Onward they came at a long swinging trot, arguing unwearied speed in their long-breathed calling. Such running footmen are often alluded to in old plays. I would particularly instance Middleton's Mad World, my masters, and perhaps may be still remembered by some old persons in Scotland as part of the retinue of the ancient nobility when travelling in full ceremony. Behind these glancing meteors, who fitted it as if the avenger of blood had been behind them, came a cloud of dust, raised by riders who preceded, attended, or followed the state carriage of the Marquis. The privilege of nobility in those days had something in it impressive on the imagination. The dresses and liveries and number of their attendants, their style of travelling, the imposing and almost warlike air of the armed men who surrounded them, placed them far above the laird who travelled with his brace of footmen, and as to rivalry from the mercantile part of the community, these would as soon have thought of imitating the state equipage of the sovereign. At present it is different, and I myself, Peter Pattison, in a late journey to Edinburgh, had the honour, in the mail-coach phrase, to change a leg with a peer of the realm. It was not so in the days of which I write, and the Marquis's approach, so long expected in vain, now took place in the full pomp of ancient aristocracy, Sir William Ashton was so much interested in what he beheld, and in considering the ceremonial of reception, in case any circumstance had been omitted, that he scarce heard his son Henry exclaim, "'There's another coach and six coming down the east road, papa. Can they both belong to the Marquis of A?' At length, when the youngster had fairly compelled his attention by pulling his sleeve, he turned his eyes, and as he turned, surveyed an awful vision." Sure enough, another coach and six, with four servants or outriders in attendance, was descending the hill from the eastward, at such a pace as made it doubtful which of the carriages thus approaching them from different quarters would first reach the gate at the extremity of the avenue. The one coach was green, the other blue, and not the green and blue chariots in the Circus of Rome or Constantinople excited more turmoil among the citizens than the double apparition occasioned in the mind of the Lord Keeper. 
we all remember the terrible exclamation of the dying profligate when a friend to destroy what he supposed the hypochondriac idea of a spectre appearing in a certain shape at a given hour placed before him a person dressed up in the manner he described mon dieu said the expiring sinner who it seems saw both the real and polygraphic apparition il y en a deux the surprise of the lord keeper was scarcely less unpleasing at the duplication of the expected arrival his mind misgave him strangely there was no neighbour who would have approached so unceremoniously at a time when ceremony was held in such respect it must be lady ashton said his conscience and followed up the hint with an anxious anticipation of the purpose of her sudden and unannounced return he felt that he was caught in the manner that the company in which she had so unluckily surprised him was likely to be highly distasteful to her there was no question and the only hope which remained for him was her high sense of dignified propriety which he trusted might prevent a public explosion but so active were his doubts and fears as altogether to derange his proposed ceremonial for the reception of the marquis these feelings of apprehension were not confined to sir william ashton it is my mother it is my mother said lucy turning as pale as ashes and clasping her hands together as she looked at ravenswood and if it be lady ashton said her lover to her in a low tone what can be the occasion of such alarm surely the return of a lady to the family from which she has been so long absent should excite other sensations than those of fear and dismay you do not know my mother said miss ashton in a tone almost breathless with terror what will she say when she sees you in this place my stay has been too long said ravenswood somewhat haughtily if her displeasure at my presence is likely to be so formidable my dear lucy he resumed in a tone of soothing encouragement you are too childishly afraid of lady ashton she is a woman of family a lady of fashion a person who must know the world and what is due to her husband and her husband's guests lucy shook her head and as if her mother still at the distance of half a mile could have seen and scrutinized her deportment she withdrew herself from beside ravenswood and taking her brother henry's arm led him to a different part of the terrace the keeper also shuffled down towards the portal of the great gate without inviting ravenswood to accompany him and thus he remained standing alone on the terrace deserted and shunned as it were by the inhabitants of the mansion this suited not the mood of one who was proud in proportion to his poverty and who thought that in sacrificing his deep-rooted resentments so far as to become sir william ashton's guest he conferred a favour and received none i can forgive lucy he said to himself she is young timid and conscious of an important engagement assumed without her mother's sanction yet she should remember with whom it has been assumed and leave me no reason to suspect that she is ashamed of her choice for the keeper sense spirit and expression seem to have left his face and manner since he had the first glimpse of lady ashton's carriage i must watch how this is to end and if they give me reason to think myself an unwelcome guest my visit is soon abridged with these suspicions floating on his mind he left the terrace and walking towards the stables of the castle gave directions that his horse should be kept in readiness 
in case you should have occasion to ride abroad. In the meanwhile, the drivers of the two carriages, the approach of which had occasioned so much dismay at the castle, had become aware of each other's presence, as they approached upon different lines to the head of the avenue as a common centre. Lady Ashton's driver and postillions instantly received orders to get foremost, if possible, her ladyship being desirous of dispatching her first interview with her husband before the arrival of these guests, whoever they might happen to be. On the other hand, the coachman of the Marquis, conscious of his own dignity and that of his master, and observing the rival charioteer was mending his pace, resolved, like a true brother of the whip, whether ancient or modern, to vindicate his right of precedence, so that, to increase the confusion of the Lord Keeper's understanding, he saw the short time which remained for consideration, abridged by the haste of the contending coachmen, who, fixing their eyes sternly on each other, and applying the lash smartly to their horses, began to thunder down the descent with emulous rapidity, while the horsemen who attended them were forced to put on to a hand-gallop. Sir William's only chance now remaining was the possibility of an overturn, and that his lady or visitor might break their necks. I am not aware that he formed any distinct wish on the subject, but I have no reason to think that his grief in either case would have been altogether inconsolable. This chance, however, also disappeared, for Lady Ashton, though insensible to fear, began to see the ridicule of running a race with a visitor of distinction, the goal being the portal of her own castle, and commanded her coachman, as they approached the avenue, to slacken his pace, and allow precedence to the stranger's equipage, a command which he gladly obeyed, as coming in time to save his honour, the horses of the Marquis's carriage being better, or at least fresher, than his own. He restrained his pace, therefore, and suffered the green coach to enter the avenue with all its retinue, which pass it occupied with the speed of a whirlwind. The Marquis's laced charioteer no sooner found the pas d'avance was granted to him than he resumed a more deliberate pace, at which he advanced under the embowering shade of the lofty elms, surrounded by all the attendants, while the carriage of Lady Ashton followed, still more slowly, at some distance. In the front of the castle, and beneath the portal which admitted guests into the inner court, stood Sir William Ashton, much perplexed in mind, his younger son and daughter beside him, and in their rear a train of attendants of various ranks, in and out of livery. The nobility and gentry of Scotland at this period were remarkable even to extravagance for the number of their servants, whose services were easily purchased in a country where men were numerous beyond proportion to the means of employing them. The manners of a man trained like Sir William Ashton are too much at his command to remain long disconcerted with the most adverse concurrence of circumstances. He received the Marquis, as he alighted from his equipage, with the usual compliments of welcome, and as he ushered him into the great hall, expressed his hope that his journey had been pleasant. The Marquis was a tall, well-made man, with a thoughtful and intelligent countenance, and an eye in which the fire of ambition had for some years replaced the vivacity of youth. A bold, proud expression of countenance, yet chastened by habitual caution, and the desire which, as the head of a party, he necessarily entertained of acquiring popularity. He answered with courtesy the courteous inquiries of the Lord Keeper, and was formally presented to Miss Ashton, 
in the course of which ceremony the Lord Keeper gave the first symptom of what was chiefly occupying his mind by introducing his daughter as his wife, Lady Ashton. Lucy blushed. The Marquis looked surprised at the extremely juvenile appearance of his hostess, and the Lord Keeper with difficulty rallied himself so far as to explain. I should have said my daughter, my lord, but the truth is that I saw Lady Ashton's carriage enter the avenue shortly after your lordship's, and— Make no apology, my lord, replied his noble guest. Let me entreat you will wait on your lady, and leave me to cultivate Miss Ashton's acquaintance. I am shocked my people should have taken precedence of our hostess at her own gate. But your lordship is aware that I supposed Lady Ashton was still in the south. Permit me to beseech you will waive ceremony, and hasten to welcome her. This was precisely what the Lord Keeper longed to do, and he instantly profited by his lordship's obliging permission. To see Lady Ashton, and encounter the first burst of her displeasure in private, might prepare her in some degree to receive her unwelcome guests with due decorum. As her carriage therefore stopped, the arm of the attentive husband was ready to assist Lady Ashton in dismounting. Looking as if she saw him not, she put his arm aside, and requested that of Captain Craigengelt, who stood by the coach with his laced hat under his arm, having acted as cavalier servant, or squire in attendance, during the journey. Taking hold of this respectable person's arm, as if to support her, Lady Ashton traversed the court, uttering a word or two by way of direction to the servants, but not one to Sir William, who in vain endeavoured to attract her attention, as he rather followed than accompanied her into the hall, in which they found the Marquis in close conversation with the Master of Ravenswood. Lucy had taken the first opportunity of escaping. There was embarrassment on every countenance, except that of the Marquis of A., for even Craigengelt's impudence was hardly able to veil his fear of Ravenswood, and the rest felt the awkwardness of the position in which they were thus unexpectedly placed. After waiting a moment to be presented by Sir William Ashton, the Marquis resolved to introduce himself. "'The Lord Keeper,' he said, bowing to Lady Ashton, "'has just introduced to me his daughter as his wife.' He might very easily present Lady Ashton as his daughter, so little does she differ from what I remember her some years since. Will she permit an old acquaintance the privilege of a guest? He saluted the lady with too good a grace to apprehend a repulse, and then proceeded, This, Lady Ashton, is a peacemaking visit, and therefore I presume to introduce my cousin, the young master of Ravenswood, to your favourable notice. Lady Ashton could not choose but curtsey, but there was in her obeisance an air of haughtiness, approaching to contemptuous repulse. Ravenswood could not choose but bow, but his manner returned the scorn with which he had been greeted. "'Allow me,' she said, "'to present to your lordship my friend.' Craigengelt, with the forward impudence which men of his caste mistake for ease, made a sliding bow to the Marquis which he graced by a flourish of his gold-laced hat. The lady turned to her husband. "'You and I, Sir William,' she said, and these were the first words she had addressed to him, "'have acquired new acquaintances since we parted. 
let me introduce the acquisition I have made to mine, Captain Craigengelt. Another bow, and another flourish of the gold-laced hat, which was returned by the Lord Keeper without intimation of former recognition, and with that sort of anxious readiness which intimated his wish that peace and amnesty should take place betwixt the contending parties, including the auxiliaries on both sides. "'Let me introduce you to the Master of Ravenswood,' said he to Captain Craigengelt, following up the same amicable system. But the Master drew up his tall form to the full extent of his height, and without so much as looking towards the person thus introduced to him, he said in a marked tone, "'Captain Craigengelt and I are already perfectly well acquainted with each other.' "'Perfectly, perfectly,' replied the captain in a mumbling tone, like that of a double echo, and with a flourish of his hat, the circumference of which was greatly abridged, compared with those which had so cordially graced his introduction to the Marquis and the Lord Keeper. Lockhart, followed by three menials, now entered with wine and refreshments, which it was the fashion to offer as a whet before dinner, and when they were placed before the guests, Lady Ashton made an apology for withdrawing her husband from them for some minutes upon business of special import. The Marquis, of course, requested her ladyship would lay herself under no restraint, and Craigengelt, bolting with speed a second glass of racy canary, hastened to leave the room, feeling no great pleasure in the prospect of being left alone with the Marquis of A., and the master of Ravenswood, the presence of the former holding him in awe, and that of the latter in bodily terror. Some arrangements about his horse and baggage formed the pretext for his sudden retreat, in which he persevered, although Lady Ashton gave Lockhart orders to be careful most particularly to accommodate Captain Craigengelt with all the attendance which he could possibly require. The Marquis and the master of Ravenswood were thus left to communicate to each other their remarks upon the reception which they had met with, while Lady Ashton led the way, and her lord followed somewhat like a condemned criminal to her ladyship's dressing-room. So soon as the spouses had both entered, her ladyship gave way to that fierce audacity of temper which she had with difficulty suppressed out of respect to appearances. She shut the door behind the alarmed Lord Keeper, took the key out of the spring-lock, and with a countenance which years had not bereft of its haughty charms, and eyes which spoke at once resolution and resentment, she addressed her astounded husband in these words. "'My lord, I am not greatly surprised at the connections you have been pleased to form during my absence. They are entirely in conformity with your birth and breeding, and if I did expect anything else, I heartily own my error.' and that I merit by having done so the disappointment you had prepared for me. "'My dear Lady Ashton, my dear Eleanor,' said the Lord Keeper, "'listen to reason for a moment, and I will convince you I have acted with all the regard due to the dignity as well as the interest of my family.' "'To the interest of your family, I conceive you perfectly capable of attending,' returned the indignant lady." and even to the dignity of your own family also, as far as it requires any looking after. But as mine happens to be inextricably involved with it, you will excuse me if I choose to give my own attention, so far as that is concerned. "'What would you have, Lady Ashton?' said the husband. 
what is it that displeases you? Why is it that, on your return after so long an absence, I am arraigned in this manner? Ask your own conscience, Sir William, what has prompted you to become a renegade to your political party and opinions, and led you, for what I know, to be on the point of marrying your only daughter to a beggarly Jacobite bankrupt, the inveterate enemy of your family to the boot? Why, what, in the name of common sense and common civility, would you have me do, madam? answered her husband. Is it possible for me, with ordinary decency, to turn a young gentleman out of my house, who saved my daughter's life, and my own, but the other morning, as it were? Saved your life? I have heard of that story, said the lady. The Lord Keeper was scared by a dun cow, and he takes the young fellow who killed her for Guy of Warwick. Any butcher from Haddington may soon have an equal claim on your hospitality. Lady Ashton, stammered the keeper, this is intolerable, and when I am desirous, too, to make you easy by any sacrifice, if you would but tell me what you would be at. Go down to your guests, said the imperious dame and make your apology to Ravenswood, that the arrival of Captain Craigengelt and some other friends renders it impossible for you to offer him lodgings at the castle. I expect young Mr. Haston of Bucklaw. Good heavens, madam! ejaculated her husband. Ravenswood to give place to Craigengelt, a common gambler and an informer? It was all I could do to forbear desiring the fellow to get out of my house, and I was much surprised to see him in your ladyship's train. "'Since you saw him there, you might be well assured,' answered this meek helpmate, "'that he was proper society. "'As to this Ravenswood, he only meets with the treatment which, to my certain knowledge, "'he gave to a much-valued friend of mine, "'who had the misfortune to be his guest some time since. "'But take your resolution.' for if Ravenswood does not quit the house, I will. Sir William Ashton paced up and down the apartment in the most distressing agitation, fear and shame and anger contending against the habitual deference he was in the use of rendering to his lady. At length it ended, as is usual with timid minds placed in such circumstances, in his adopting a mezzo-termine, a middle measure. I tell you frankly, madam, I neither can nor will be guilty of the incivility you propose to the master of Ravenswood. He has not deserved it at my hand. If you will be so unreasonable as to insult a man of quality under your own roof, I cannot prevent you. But I will not at least be the agent in such a preposterous proceeding. You will not? asked the lady. No, by heavens, madam her husband replied. Ask me anything congruent with common decency, as to drop his acquaintance by degrees or the like, but to bid him leave my house is what I will not and cannot consent to. Then the task of supporting the honour of the family will fall on me, as it has often done before, said the lady. She sat down and hastily wrote a few lines. The Lord Keeper made another effort to prevent her taking a step so decisive, just as she opened the door to call her female attendant from the ante-room. 
think what you are doing, Lady Ashton. You are making a mortal enemy of a young man who is like to have the means of harming us. Did you ever know a Douglas who feared an enemy? answered the lady contemptuously. Ay, but he is as proud and vindictive as a hundred Douglases, and a hundred devils to boot. Think of it for a night only. Not for another moment, answered the lady. Here, Mrs. Patullo, give this billet to young Ravenswood. To the master, madam, said Mrs. Patullo. Ay, to the master, if you call him so. I wash my hands of it entirely, said the keeper, and I shall go down into the garden and see that Jardin gathers the winter fruit for the dessert. Do so, said the lady, looking after him with glances of infinite contempt, and thank God that you leave one behind you as fit to protect the honour of the family as you are to look after pippins and pears. The Lord Keeper remained long enough in the garden to give her ladyship's mind time to explode, and to let, as he thought, at least the first violence of Ravenswood's displeasure blow over. When he entered the hall, he found the Marquis of A giving orders to some of his attendants. He seemed in high displeasure, and interrupted an apology which Sir William had commenced for having left his lordship alone. "'I presume, Sir William, you are no stranger to this singular billet with which my kinsman of Ravenswood—an emphasis on the word my— has been favoured by your lady, and, of course, that you are prepared to receive my adieu. My kinsman is already gone, having thought it unnecessary to offer any on his part, since all former civilities had been cancelled by this singular insult. I protest, my lord, said Sir William, holding the billet in his hand, I am not privy to the contents of this letter. I know Lady Ashton is a warm-tempered and prejudiced woman, and I am sincerely sorry for any offence that has been given or taken, but I hope your lordship will consider that a lady should bear herself towards persons of a certain rank with a breeding of one, said the Marquis, completing the half-uttered sentence. True, my lord, said the unfortunate keeper, but Lady Ashton is still a woman. And as such, methinks, said the Marquis, again interrupting him, should be taught the duties which correspond to her station. But here she comes, and I will learn from her own mouth the reason for this extraordinary and unexpected affront offered to my near relation, while both he and I were her ladyship's guests. Lady Ashton accordingly entered the apartment at this moment. Her dispute with Sir William, and a subsequent interview with her daughter, had not prevented her from attending to the duties of her toilet. She appeared in full dress, and from the character of her countenance and manner, well became the splendour with which ladies of quality then appeared on such occasions. The Marquis of A bowed haughtily, and she returned the salute with equal pride and distance of demeanour. He then took from the passive hand of Sir William Ashton the billet he had given him the moment before. He approached the lady, and was about to speak when she interrupted him. "'I perceive, my lord, you are about to enter upon an unpleasant subject. I am sorry any such should have occurred at this time, to interrupt in the slightest degree the respectful reception due to your lordship. But so it is. 
Mr. Edgar Ravenswood, for whom I have addressed the billet in your lordship's hand, has abused the hospitality of this family, and Sir William Ashton's softness of temper, in order to seduce a young person into engagements without her parents' consent, and of which they can never approve. Both gentlemen answered at once. "'My kinsman is incapable,' said the Lord Marquis. "'I am confident that my daughter Lucy is still more incapable,' said the Lord Keeper. Lady Ashton at once interrupted and replied to them both. "'My Lord Marquis, your kinsman, if Mr. Ravenswood has the honour to be so, has made the attempt privately to secure the affections of this young and inexperienced girl. Sir William Ashton, your daughter has been simple enough to give more encouragement than she ought to have done to so very improper a suitor.' "'And I think, madam,' said the Lord Keeper, losing his accustomed temper and patience, that if you had nothing better to tell us, you had better have kept this family secret to yourself also. "'You will pardon me, Sir William,' said the lady calmly. "'The noble Marquis has a right to know the cause of the treatment I have found it necessary to use to a gentleman whom he calls his blood relation.' "'It is a cause,' muttered the Lord Keeper, "'which has emerged since the effect has taken place.' for if it exists at all, I am sure she knew nothing of it when her letter to Ravenswood was written. "'It was the first time that I have heard of this,' said the Marquis. "'But since your ladyship has tabled a subject so delicate, permit me to say that my kinsman's birth and connections entitled him to a patient hearing, and at least a civil refusal.' even in case of his being so ambitious as to raise his eyes to the daughter of Sir William Ashton. "'You will recollect, my lord, of what blood Miss Lucy Ashton is come by the mother's side,' said the lady. "'I do remember your descent from a younger branch of the house of Angus,' said the Marquis. "'And your ladyship, forgive me, lady, ought not to forget,' that the Ravenswoods have thrice intermarried with the main stem. Come, madam, I know how matters stand. Old and long-fostered prejudices are difficult to get over. I make every allowance for them. I ought not, and I would not, otherwise have suffered my kinsman to depart alone, expelled, in a manner, from this house. But I had hopes of being a mediator." I am still unwilling to leave you in anger, and shall not set forward till after noon, as I rejoin the master of Ravenswood upon the road a few miles from hence. Let us talk over this matter more coolly. It is what I anxiously desire, my lord, said Sir William Ashton eagerly. Lady Ashton, you will not permit my lord of A to leave us in displeasure. We must compel him to tarry dinner at the castle. The castle, said the lady, and all that it contains are at the command of the Marquis, so long as he chooses to honour it with his residence. But touching the farther discussion of this disagreeable topic. Pardon me, good madam, said the Marquis, but I cannot allow you to express any hasty resolution on a subject so important. I see that more company is arriving, 
and since I have the good fortune to renew my former acquaintance with Lady Ashton, I hope she will give me leave to avoid perilling what I prize so highly upon any disagreeable subject of discussion, at least till we have talked over more pleasant topics. The lady smiled, curtsied, and gave her hand to the Marquis, by whom, with all the formal gallantry of the time, which did not permit the guest to tuck the lady of the house under the arm, as a rustic does his sweetheart at a wake, she was ushered to the eating-room. Here they were joined by Bucklaw, Craigengelt, and other neighbours, whom the Lord Keeper had previously invited to meet the Marquis of A. An apology, founded upon a slight indisposition, was alleged as an excuse for the absence of Miss Ashton, whose seat appeared unoccupied. The entertainment was splendid to profusion, and was protracted till a late hour. End of chapter 22